Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm Ashley, and with me always is my partner in crime. Ricky. Hey. I thought, I, I didn't know I was going to have a, a part. Yeah, well, I wanted to introduce you because you're my partner in crime. Well, hello, everyone. Well, before we jump into this awesome case that we've covered, we do have a list of patrons. We have a lot. We have a lot. I think there's 12. All right. So I'll do six. Okay. And you do six. So we have Kristen, Jamie, Blake, Fiona, T. Sprinkles, Katrina, Yolanda, Amy. I did more than six. Jessica, Emily, Michelle, and Tammy. Thank you guys so much for your support. Thank you. Thank you. And these lovely people are getting a brand new car ad-free listen. So if you guys have any questions, just message us because we're happy to help. So the case that we're covering this week is known as the Cleveland kidnappings. And I can remember this case whenever it first was blowing up in the media. It's one that has always stuck in my head and one that I've always wanted to cover. And today we are finally covering it. I remember the YouTube video. The YouTube video. Of that guy who who, uh, saved them. Charles Ramsey. I barbecue with this guy. We listened to salsa music together. He's an extraordinary guy, and he literally saved these women. Like, he didn't even know he was going to save someone that day. It's pretty crazy. I mean, heroics aside, though, he's a storyteller. Yeah, he's pretty amazing. Someone needs to get him on a podcast. He should have, like, really won an award, I feel like. I actually did, too. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's jump into this week's episode. You may have heard of the story of the three women who were kidnapped and held against their will under the control of the monster Ariel Castro. It's hard to even imagine what these three women actually went through to live in hell for years day by day, tied with ropes and chains, to be raped repeatedly, to be tortured and beaten again and again, and to be hidden from the world and then to be free from all of that years later, having to adapt back to some sort of normalcy after being tortured and broken. I don't think we'll ever really know the whole story. Let's jump into part one of The Vanishings. So today, our story starts with a miracle. It begins with three women, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina Jesus, who came back from the dead. On May 6, 2013, Amanda Berry, a woman who had been missing for 10 years and long thought dead since the eve of her 17th, called 911 and announced she had been missing, but now she was free. Help me, I'm Amanda Berry. You need police, fire, or ambulance? I need police. Okay, and what's going on there? I've been kidnapped, and I've been missing for 10 years, and I'm, I'm here. I'm free now. Okay, and what's your address? Uh, 2207 Seymour Avenue. 2207 Seymour. Looks like you're calling me from 2210. Okay, stay there with those names and talk to the police when they get there. Okay. Uh, hello? Yeah, talk to the police when they get there. Okay, okay. I'm going to leave right now. We're going to send them as soon as we get a car open. No, I need them now before we get the back. All right, we're sending them, okay? Okay, I mean, what who's the right guy? Now? Who's the guy you're uh, trying? Who's the guy who went out? Um, His name is Ariel Castro. I'm Amanda Berry. 
sorry. I've been on the nose for the last 10 years. Okay, I got I got that here. What's I already There's the police are on the way. Talk to okay. them when they get there. Okay? Uh, I need okay. I told you they're on the way. Talk to them when they get there, okay? All right, okay. Again, that's part of the remarkable emergency 911. As Amanda says in that now infamous 911 call, the man keeping her in that home along with two other women against their will, living in chains and rope, hiding in darkness for years, was Ariel Castro. Disguised to be a harmless man, Ariel was born and raised his first 12 years of life in Puerto Rico. His mother Lillian Rodriguez left him in Puerto Rico when he was just six years old while she came to the United States to make a better life for her four sons. This is when Ariel alleges that he was sexually abused by an older male relative. At 12 years old, he was finally reunited with his mother in Pennsylvania, and then they eventually settled in the Cleveland area. Ariel was a talented musician who taught himself to play the bass by ear. He was so talented, he joined several popular Cleveland area salsa bands. He couldn't read music, however, if he heard a song one time, he could instantly play it by ear. As a young man, he took a liking to a young teenager who moved in across the street in the mid-80s. Her name was Grimilda Figueroa, and she was known as Nilda. After their first date, Nilda moved in with the older Castro at the urging of her family. Soon after their first children were born, Castro bought the now infamous house on Seymour Drive from a friend for $15,000. Right from the start of their relationship came the allegations of violence and physical abuse. Nilda would later testify that from the very first day they began living together, Castro treated his common-law wife like a prisoner, often locking her inside the home, not allowing her to leave or speak with her family. The house on Seymour Drive, where Nilda and later other girls would endure unimaginable suffering, was 1,400 square feet in size. It had four bedrooms and one bathroom. It also included a 760 square foot finished basement. From day one, the basement was off limits to Castro's growing family, which soon included four children. Together, they had one son, Ariel Castro Jr., who later changed his name to Anthony, and their three daughters, Angie, Emily, and Arlene. By all accounts, Castro wasn't physically abusive to his daughters. However, he was brutal to Nilda and their son. According to witnesses and Nilda's medical records, Castro broke Nilda's nose twice, broke several of her ribs and one of her arms. Of special note is that he cracked her skull twice, once by throwing her down the stairs and another time by repeatedly kicking her in the head after she'd just returned home from the hospital from brain surgery. The trauma to her head resulted in blood clots that needed to be surgically removed. Due to the extensive injuries to Nilda's head, she developed an inoperable brain tumor. Doctors told her it was a ticking time bomb and would eventually lead her to death. In 1993, Castro was indicted by a grand jury for domestic violence. On the eve of the trial, he threatened Nilda that if she ever testified against him, he would kill her and their four children. As a result, Nilda retracted her statements of abuse. Castro would continuously deny Nilda's allegations of abuse and even insisted that it was Nilda who was abusive to him. 
1996, Nilda met a security officer at the hospital where she was being treated for her brain tumor. He offered her a lifeline. With police standing by, he moved Nilda and her four children out of the House of Horrors on Seymour Drive and in with him. His name was Fernando Colon, and Castro would promise to get him back one day for taking Nilda from him. He kept that promise too, which will be discussed more in depth in part two of our story. Castro consistently tried to get Nilda back, not because he loved her or missed her, but because he liked to win. He saw Nilda as his personal property. There would be grave consequences for both of them for that betrayal. So at this time of all places, Castro was working as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District and played in a local salsa band at night. That is where he would meet his much younger girlfriend, Lillian Roden. Lillian and Castro dated from 2000 to 2003. She was 16 years his junior and described him as handsome, romantic, and suave. She said that he was the perfect gentleman who swept her off her feet. So she was shocked and devastated when he wrote that letter in 2003, telling her that his life was too busy with his job and his music for a relationship. Because she believed that they were heading towards marriage and the two even got matching tattoos. In the book, Lost Girls by John Glatt, she would tell the author that Castro was never violent with her and always gentle. There is a reason for Castro's uncharacteristic change in behavior. First, he wanted to restore his reputation in the local close-knit Puerto Rican community. In that endeavor, he made grand public gestures of singing romantic songs for Lillian, all the while encouraging her to tell everyone that they had an abusive-free relationship. As we will discuss later, Castro liked to play this long game. Lillian assumed his ex was just a bitter and jealous woman trying to ruin Castro's reputation because he had moved on without her. Of course we know, she couldn't have been more wrong. The second reason why Castro was able to treat Lillian so kindly was simple. He had a secret outlet for his need for brutal acts of depravity. Castro was keeping a secret. Actually, he was keeping several secrets. The name of his first secret was Michelle Knight. On August 22, 2002, she was just 21 years old and she still looked like a child. At only 4'6 and under 80 pounds, you would never guess she was a grown adult, let alone a mother of a child. Michelle was raised in extreme poverty and had a tragic upbringing. Her parents were both drug addicts and they often lived in dilapidated surroundings, having to move often. For two years, Michelle and her parents and her two younger twin brothers lived in a car, eating food they picked off of fruit trees. When they did finally live in traditional housing, it was in bad, crime-ridden neighborhoods with various other family members and often strangers. At times, there could be up to 15 people living in small apartments and homes. There was never enough food, and often there wasn't hot water or even electricity. Michelle became a de facto mother to her younger brothers and all of the other random children that moved in with their parents and caregivers. Michelle couldn't remember at what age a male relative began sexually molesting her. All she knew is that she would have to let her mind wander to endure the repeated degradation. 
Each encounter would come with a promise to kill her and her family if she ever told anyone, so she never did. At 15 years old, Michelle needed to escape her tragic conditions. She made a plan, packed a bag, and ran away from home. She could no longer endure the abuse and thought being homeless was the better choice. Not surprisingly, her parents never reported her as missing. To keep Worman dry, she would sleep inside a trash can under a freeway off-ramp. It also kept her from being attacked and allowed her to get some sleep. She discovered if she attended church services at a local church, they would provide free meals. She would also look forward to using their restroom to keep herself clean as best she could. She loved the choir music at the church and later would sing those same songs to herself to find comfort in her darkest days ahead. It was living on the streets where Michelle met a local drug dealer and he gave her a safe place to live in exchange for selling drugs for him. It would be the first time she felt safe and cared for. In her book entitled Finding Me, she would say it was the first time she felt like she had a family. Unfortunately, that safety was short-lived when her benefactor was arrested. Soon, Michelle was back on the streets and back living in that trash can. And that's when a family friend spotted her and told her father. Her father came looking for her and dragged her back home. Almost immediately, the male relative began abusing her again. To endure the abuse, she would sing the church hymns she learned while being homeless. It wouldn't be long before a boy at school began giving Michelle some much needed and positive attention. A few months later, she found out she was pregnant with her son. She would later name him Joey. Shortly after Joey's birth, Michelle's parents broke up. Michelle's mother, Barbara Knight, began living with another man. For a while, Michelle described those days as chaos-free. It was definitely quieter without all of the fighting. Unfortunately, her mother's new boyfriend wasn't much better than her father. One day, Michelle came home from work and found her son with her mother's boyfriend. Her mother was supposed to be watching Joey while Michelle was looking for a job. When Michelle arrived home that day, he made unwanted sexual advances towards her. When she refused, he grabbed her son by the leg and snapped it. Michelle took her baby to the hospital and told the doctors that Joey had fallen at the park. She was worried if they knew the truth that they would take her son away from her. Unknown to Michelle, a family relative had called the hospital and told them what really happened to Joey. Social services were brought in, and just as Michelle had feared, they took custody of Joey until Michelle could prove she could provide a safe environment for him. Michelle immediately moved in with her cousin, got a job, and was doing everything that was required of her to get her son back. It was on August 22nd when she had her next scheduled visitation with her son. A social worker had offered to pick up Michelle because she didn't have transportation. However, she declined because her cousin had offered her a ride. When that ride fell through, Michelle began walking. She started out very early so she wouldn't be late. On her way, she got lost. She walked into a Dollar Tree store to ask for directions. While there, a man she recognized told her he knew exactly where she was going and would be happy to give her a ride. That man was Ariel Castro, and he was the father of her friend, Emily. Michelle thought it was her lucky day. 
Now she would get to see her son and she wouldn't be late. Once inside the car, Castro told her that he needed to do one small errand first at his house. She said that was fine, but it would need to be quick because she really couldn't be late. He told Michelle his dog had just had puppies and he needed to feed them. Then he offered to let her pick out one of the puppies for her son. Michelle followed him inside and immediately noticed how dark and messy the place was. He led her upstairs to a closed door. He told her to open the door and go in to pick out a puppy. Once she was inside the room, she was immediately confused. She didn't see any puppies, but Castro had closed the door, locking her inside. He told her to take off her clothes and lie down on a dirty mattress on the floor. There, he masturbated over her while calling her degrading names. Michelle was used to this kind of treatment and tried to act like she wasn't mad and wouldn't report it. She promised to keep it just between them if he would still take her to see her son. She had no idea she wouldn't leave that house for another 11 years. Castro tried to explain to her that he had a sexual problem and would need her to stay for a few days. He said he wanted them to be friends. He duct taped her hands and her feet and strung her up on a wire she didn't realize was already in place. He left her hung up like that for hours. When he returned, her arms and legs were numb. When he cut her down, she immediately fell to the floor. He demanded she got up and walked downstairs. When she explained that she couldn't move, he hit her and kicked her. Eventually, he carried her down the stairs into his basement where he had long, heavy, rusty chains all prepared for her. There, he raped and sodomized Michelle for hours. When he was done, the mattress in the basement was soaked in her blood. Before he left, he chained her hands, legs, and stomach around a support beam in the basement. Then he stuffed an old gray sock in her mouth and duct taped it shut. Castro put a motorcycle helmet on her head to muffle her screams. She had to concentrate very hard to take in enough air to breathe. He told her once he could trust her, she could have a little more freedom. Castro's version of freedom didn't resemble freedom at all. The next day, Castro came back into the basement in a rage. He had Michelle's wallet and realized she was almost 22 years old. He was livid because he thought that she was much younger. Originally, he thought she was a 13-year-old prostitute. It was then that he told her that he would need to keep her for a few months rather than a few days to help with his sexual problem. He promised that she would be home by Christmas. Michelle was devastated. She knew by Christmas she would have permanently lost custody of her son. Michelle soon learned that Castro never kept any of his promises. Eventually, he told Michelle that he could keep her as long as he wanted because no one missed her and no one was looking for her which was close, but not entirely true. After a few days, Michelle's mother and cousin did report her missing. For 15 months, she would remain on the national missing person list. Because she was an adult at the time of her disappearance, her case didn't get any press. She also didn't have anyone trying to get her name into the press. At this time, Michelle's mother said that she was slow, was easily confused, and would often get lost. She also believed that Michelle may have taken off out of anger over losing her son. 
Later, it would be learned that either due to miscommunication or clerical error, Michelle was removed from the missing person database. Castro loved to torture her with the fact that no one loved her enough to look for her. Later, when he would add other captives, he loved telling Michelle that no one wanted her back and no one missed her. For a while, Castro balanced his secret life with his secret captives and a normal relationship with his girlfriend Lillian. Michelle was eventually moved to an upstairs room where she remained constantly chained up and only had a bucket for a makeshift bathroom. Sometimes Castro would invite people over to the house and would play extremely loud music upstairs. Michelle knew if she weren't perfectly quiet, he would later beat and torture her. She did her best to stay as quiet as she could, attached to thick and heavy chains. Castro had also boarded up all of the windows in the house. For ventilation, he cut holes into the bottom of her locked door and holes between the rooms at the floorboards. He also had another purpose for this makeshift ventilation. Just nine months after abducting Michelle, Castro would add a captive to his private harem. On April 21st, 2003, Amanda Berry was just finishing her shift at Burger King. She was just 16 years old, and the next day was her 17th birthday. She was excited to celebrate with her family and friends. Usually, her mother, sister, or brother-in-law would pick her up from work. In fact, her brother-in-law was the manager. But that day, she didn't have a ride. She was at a payphone talking to her sister when someone she knew offered to take her home. Without telling her sister the name of the person offering her a ride, she hung up and said she would see her soon. That person was Ariel Castro. He was driving his blue van and he recognized Amanda. His son, Ariel Castro Jr., had worked with Amanda and she also went to school with his sister, Arlene. Similar to Michelle's abduction, he took a detour to his house. He told Amanda that Arlene was inside and she should come inside real quick to say hello. Amanda reluctantly went inside and followed him up the stairs. He pointed to a locked door with a hole cut out in the bottom and told her to take a look inside. She saw a young girl chained to a bed. He told Amanda that this was his roommate and she was very messy. Amanda began getting a funny feeling in her stomach and demanded to be taken home. When she tried to run from the house, she panicked and opened up a closet, thinking that it led to freedom. It did not. That is when Castro attacked her and dragged her into the basement. Once again, just like Michelle, he raped her and then chained her to the support beam in the basement. She also had a sock shoved into her mouth and a motorcycle helmet placed over her head. Over the next five days, he raped and sodomized her 29 times. Amanda kept count because if she made it out alive, she wanted him to be held accountable for each violation of her body. There was a stark difference between Michelle's abduction and Amanda's abduction. Amanda had people looking for her. Her mother, Luana Berry, and her sister, Beth Serrano, were nightly fixtures on the news, handing out flyers and making pleas for her safe return. Sadly, 
Amanda's mother died before being able to find Amanda. For nearly three years, she has publicly pleaded for her daughter's return. Tonight, the mother of missing teenager Amanda Berry is dead. Fox 8 News reporter Kevin Freeman now here with the tales of Kevin. It's just an increasingly sad story. Yeah, very sad, Lou. Luana Miller died just after 2 o'clock this morning at Lakewood Hospital after a long illness. Relatives and friends say she died of a broken heart, and they vowed to keep the search for Amanda Berry alive. It's been so long, I just need to know. Uh, it's killing me. I need to find out what happened with my daughter, or if she's out there, where's she at? That was April 2004. Luana Miller appeals for help in finding her 16-year-old daughter, Amanda Berry. The teen disappeared after leaving her job at the Burger King at West 110th in Lorraine the year before. Her last few years... Castro took perverse pleasure by allowing Amanda to watch her family on TV, distraught and panicked over her disappearance. He thought it was hilarious. They had no idea how close she was. Michelle had a small TV in her room, and she too saw the pleas from Amanda's family. She also heard the screams and cries from down in the basement. She immediately accused him of taking Amanda, which he denied for months. He loved playing psychological games and pitting the two girls against each other. He had convinced Amanda that Michelle was there willingly, playing some type of slave and master game. Amanda was sickened by the thought and instantly disliked Michelle. He also forbade them from speaking to each other, and they weren't allowed to tell each other their names. He especially forbade them from talking about him. He would often try to trick them by leaving them together and then beating and questioning them until they admitted to speaking to each other. Amanda admitted that Michelle had recognized her and used her name. This made Michelle realize that she couldn't trust Amanda. A week after Amanda's abduction, he did something exceptionally cruel. He used Amanda's phone to call her mother. He told Luana Berry that her daughter was alive and was now his wife and would never be returning home. This caused the FBI to set up a phone tap on Luana's phone. For weeks, they waited for Castro to call back, but he never did. They had no idea that they had pinpointed the call to within three blocks of Castro's home. Over the years, there'd be other missed encounters just like this. They were often close to the girls, but not close enough to save them. There was no end to Castro's depravity. Having two captives wasn't enough to satiate his sick desires. He had his eye on the daughter of one of his high school friends. She was also his daughter Arlene's best friend. She was a 14-year-old middle school girl by the name of Gina DeJesus. He had been planning to take her for months, stalking and watching and waiting for the right opportunity. That day presented itself on April 2, 2004. Gina invited her friend Arlene to come home with her that day. They used the payphone at Wilbur Wright Middle School to call Arlene Castro's mom. When they asked, Arlene's mom said no, so the girls took off, walking in opposite directions. Neither girl knew that they were being watched by Ariel Castro. Just as Arlene was out of sight, 
Castro drove up to Gina and asked her if she knew where his daughter was, pretending he was picking her up from school. He offered to give Gina a ride home, and since it was the father of her classmate, she felt safe taking him up on the offer. Using the same ruse he did on the other girls, he told her that he wanted to stop back home for a quick errand. He thought Arlene would be at his house, and he wanted to give Gina the chance to say hello. When she was reluctant to get out of the car, he promised Arlene was inside. Once inside, Gina started to get a bad feeling. The place was dark and messy and smelled like cigarettes. When she realized Arlene wasn't there, she asked to leave. Castro again promised to take her home if she would first help him move a heavy speaker from the basement. Now, this is where reported details differ. We are going with the version of events that Gina herself shared in the book entitled Hope, co-written with Amanda Berry. In her book, she stated that Castro locked her in the basement, chained her to the support beam, and placed the same motorcycle helmet over her head for days. She was only given a bucket to use for a makeshift bathroom, and there was the same dirty mattress he raped the other two captives on. He would lie in bed with her and fondle her, telling her that he planned to take her for a very long time. This would be the exact opposite thing he would tell the other captives and judge 10 years later. He would later apologize to the DeJesus family and tell the court he went to school with Gina's father. He insisted it was a spur-of-the-moment decision and he had no idea she was 14 years old. But to Gina herself, he admitted his darkest depravity. He always intended to take her. Four days after she was taken, Castro raped her for the first time. Like the others, he was insatiable, and she screamed and cried throughout the first week. The other girls heard Gina screaming, but Castro kept denying he had another captive. He insisted he was listening to porn. Michelle saw the plea on the TV from Gina's family and accused him of taking the young girl, an accusation he repeatedly denied. Michelle was never one to back down to Castro. She would often call him out on his hypocrisy, especially his attendance at church. She couldn't believe he had the audacity to sit in God's house once a week and then come back home and torture his captives. She took the punishments he gave out rather than break. Unfortunately, Gina wasn't as strong, and she wasn't handling captivity as well as the other girls. She had fallen into a deep depression and was contemplating suicide. As a remedy, he thought if she had a friend, she would begin to accept her plight. He brought her up to Michelle's room and chained the two girls together. He made her promise to use a fake name. However, as soon as he left the room, Michelle told her that she knew her real name was Gina de Jesus and she had been kidnapped. She also told Gina about Amanda Berry. Like Amanda's family, Gina's family would never stop looking for her. In fact, the FBI had linked the two missing girls taken just nine months apart on the same street. They always believed the same person took both girls. The family would hold prayer vigils for the girls on the anniversary of their disappearance and through the years weathered speculation when tips came in on the whereabouts of the girls' alleged remains. Castro would find these events hilarious and make the girls watch the press conferences, laughing at the authorities and never realizing the girls were right under their noses the entire time. Then I went through my mind with uh, Beth, my mother's sister, 
see what she must be going through. Nancy Ruiz knows all too well the pain the Berry family is experiencing right now. As soon as she heard the news this morning of the search for Amanda Berry's remains, relatives called and came over to her house to comfort her. Her daughter, 14-year-old Gina De Jesus, went missing back in 2004, just a year after Amanda Berry's disappearance. Six years ago, the FBI also got an anonymous tip on the whereabouts of Gina De Jesus' remains. So Ree says today's events feel eerily similar. In 2006, when they did, uh, they excavated a garage, uh, to, uh, because it was said that my daughter's remains were supposed to be buried there, and they were not. I knew that. And by the time they were done, they didn't find anything. And I know the heartache that my family went through, what I went through. And I, I could just only imagine what Beth and her family is going through. I mean, especially with her mom not here. Thursday afternoon, Ruiz went to West 30th and Seymour Street, just a block away from where the FBI is conducting their investigation. She spoke to people in the neighborhood. She says she came to the scene because she wants to be there for support. Because I wanted Beth to know that she's not alone. Gina's mother says she continues to wear shirts with her daughter's face on it to bring attention to the disappearances. She says wearing the shirt keeps her going, plus today's FBI activities on the corner of West 30th and Wade gives her hope that maybe her little girl will be found too. If she is there, I mean, they will have closure and they will be able to, to move on forward. But if she's not there, I will tell Beth, keep her faith because a man is out there somewhere just like Gina. Gina's mother never gave up hope looking for the girls. It was the solidarity of the two families that got both girls featured on America's Most Wanted in 2004. Arlene Castro would be interviewed for the segment, having been the last person to see Gina alive before her abduction. This is Tom Morris with one of our most mysterious missing child cases. It started at this Cleveland Middle School one year ago today. 14-year-old Gina DeJesus left school and started walking down this busy Cleveland street. She never made it home. Gina vanished in broad daylight. When I came home and I got on the phone, and from 4 o'clock I started calling friends after friends, they said they did not see her. I talked to the last person who did see Gina that day, her best friend and classmate, Arlene Castro. The two girls were walking home together, hoping to spend the rest of the afternoon at Gina's house. I decided to call my mom to ask her, and so she gave me 50 cents to call my mom, and so my mom said no, that I can't go over her house. And so I told her I couldn't, and she said, well, okay, I'll talk to you later, and she Walked. Normally, Gina would have taken the bus, but after she gave Arlene 50 cents for the payphone, she didn't have enough money left for bus fare, so she headed home on foot. Police canines tracked Gina's scent from the payphone at the corner, right down the street, halfway up the block, to this snow street sign right here. And this is where the trail went cold. The disappearance of Gina De Jesus on busy Lorraine Avenue has sent a familiar chill through this Cleveland community. The cops working to bring her home are the same cops trying to solve the disappearance of another teenage girl, almost exactly a year earlier and just a few blocks away. 
Amanda Berry vanished on April 21, 2003, as she walked home from her job at this fast food restaurant. And when she disappeared, which direction was she walking? She was last observed to be walking northbound on West 110th, which is a street right here. Two attractive teenage girls. They disappear in similar circumstances along the same busy avenue. What does it mean? A lot of the local people around here, you know, are talking about it as well and how they're getting a little bit scared for their, their, their children as well. After Gina was taken, Castro was worried he was caught on surveillance camera. Coupled with his daughter, Arlene, being interviewed by the FBI, he believed it was just a matter of time before he was caught. While waiting for authorities to find him, he planned his ending. He wanted to die in a dramatic shootout, only they never came. So he waited with the suicide note he had written defending himself and a loaded gun he would sometimes use to play Russian roulette with the girls. That note would be found nine years later. In the note, he explained to the police that he had a sickness and was a sexual predator and needed help due to childhood abuse. He explained he needed them there to prevent him from hurting more people and explained they were all one big happy family. Before the chains and locked doors, he also asked the police to divide up his life savings between the three girls as he felt they earned it during their time in captivity. In fact, throughout their captivity, he would pay the girls for what he considered their services after he raped and assaulted them. Then he would allow them to use that money to purchase things from him such as cigarettes, notebooks, and pens. All three women would keep journals during their captivity, documenting the things that they endured, the way that they survived, and how they persevered until that day they unexpectedly gained freedom. A day that began like every other day in captivity. That is where we are going to end this episode. We will conclude our story of the vanishings in part two, where we will discuss life in captivity for the women, the birth of Amanda Berry's daughter, the horrific infanticide committed against Michelle Knight, and life after their escape. We will also cover the sentencing hearing for Ariel Castro, where, spoil alert, his feelings are hurt when he is called a monster, and his statement to the victims makes the judge very angry. We will also discuss Ariel Castro's psychological report in prison and his inevitable cowardly end. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Salad. Plan on joining us next week on the same day at the same time. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.